always in design too, prior to kids, I always felt like simplicity is the best and ultimate sophistication, you know, like that's famous quote. And I think it just pervaded who I am. And then with kids, like all their clothes is like a solid top or solid bottom so they can mix and match. So we don't have a ton of clothes, but they can dress themselves. They're out the door. I don't have to worry about if their clothes match because all of them kind of fit together. So we do like the little whole capsule wardrobe for them. They get like one pair of tennis shoes, one pair of dress shoes, and one pair of like summer shoes. And, you know, obviously we get gifted things and we're trying to always purge. It's not perfect. So I think in this journey, the biggest part of me has been, okay, I know that I like minimalism, but how do I live in balance with people who don't live like that? <laughs> with my, my husband and, you know, he loves cables and wires and extra chargers. <laughs> and so how do we balance that? Do you see my pen? I got notes right here. Yeah, I'm looking to make it a little lighter. <laughs> Are we mutually aligned oh, right now? Oh my goodness. Uh, there's, there's always, always two, two versions. <laughs> I mean, you're moving a little slow, but... Working I, I, really a- hard. <laughs> we will definitely talk about that later. <laughs> Love for work. Welcome to the Love Work Podcast. This is Jeff. And I'm Andre. And... Our series is continuing today on parenting. Yes. This was a little mix of a lot of kind of parenting, marriage, all the things today. Yeah, we hit on a lot of a lot of really good things. But before we get there, oh. I have a question for you. Okay. I'm going to interview you. Oh, boy. What's one new thing you've been learning about parenting? Well, one thing I have been thinking a lot more about is this idea that I'm not responsible for my children's emotions. My kids, they're their emotions. They're their own people. They have their own personhood. Mm -hmm. These are their own emotions. So whether they're happy or they're sad or however they feel is their own feelings. And that doesn't directly become my fault or my responsibility. Yeah, But it is my responsibility to choose to be a model a good example of how to control my emotions or model examples of how to feel my feelings, to be able to feel my feelings and be sad if I want to be sad and things like that. Also allowing the kids to own their own feelings. Because I think a lot of times I just take this unnecessary responsibility or guilt for what they're feeling at the time. But what about you? You can't just throw it on me and not take it back on you. I feel like I'm kind of more of the interviewer in this situation. (laughs) I'm bringing the questions. Uh, I have a follow-up question that that is kind of funny because Nico's come up with a little nickname for you, right? Oh, no. What is it? You are going to seriously throw me under the bus like that. I mean, it's it's kind of funny. You want to let the whole world know that he calls me Mean Mom? Which is heartbreaking on one sense. The other sense is a little funny because he's trying to joke. That's what's interesting in the midst mm, of this. But oh. you're not responsible for that. That's what you're, you're going to let her just be in his feelings. <laughs> it's funny that he calls me MM on the times that I like, you know, say to him, oh, did you pick up those toys that I asked you to pick right. up? You know, totally. and he's like, oh, MM, why you got to be like that? You know, and I'm like, oh, Lord, have mercy. Hold me back. Hold me back from this child (laughs) because I'm about to go to town. Listen, so why I'm bringing this up 
why are you letting the whole world know that I'm called by my own children mean mom? Because you're not. You're not. <laughs> okay. I know that. You know that. <laughs> Nico's learning that. Uh, I just think it's funny. Like, this is part of parenting. There's going to be moments when your kids get mad at you for literally nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Guess what? It's okay. Right. I'm not responsible for him thinking I'm a mean mom. <laughs> I don't know if that plays out. <laughs> I mean, a couple times is justified. But other than that, most of the time, not so much. I'm joking, obviously. But, I, you know, that's part of parenting. It is. Part of parenting is that at some point, your kids are going to have an opinion about you. Yeah. I wonder how long this mean mom it's thing is going to go on. Long. How long do you think this phase will happen? Not long at all, because you're a great mom. I did last night. You weren't here last night. But I recorded Jada telling me, Mom, I love you. When I grow up and I'm... You recorded her? Yeah, because she said, Mom, I'm going to be a teenager that loves you Mm. and that continues to like want to be with you and enjoy our time because I love our time together. Mm -hmm. So she was saying these things and I said, stop, pause. Record this. I need to record this because <laughs> when you turn 16 and turn all crazy, emotion, hormonal, and not nice to me, I'm going to play this back for you. And she let me. She recorded the whole thing of that little sweet, sweet 11-year-old meanwhile, preteen. Meanwhile, for Mother's she Day. She don't even know. For Mother's Day, I'm going to encourage Nico to get you a bag of M&M's. Just kidding. I would not do that. <laughs> that would be horrible. Can you imagine? It's fine. I'm not responsible. <laughs> I just want to take a second. Thank all of our people, all of our subscribers who listen to this podcast. We do this for you. We hope we do it for ourselves, honestly. And we do (laughs) it for you. I was going to say, it's a little selfish. It's a little selfish because we're trying to become better parents. We're trying to become better humans, better in relationship together. But in the midst of it, we hope it's helping you also. So if it is helping you, if this is something that really is an encouragement to you, you can give a little back to us too. put a nice little rating in the old, uh, podcast, whatever you listen on. Give us five stars. Okay. Or you might not have known. We wrote a book. Oh, yeah. We Andre, did. if you didn't, if you haven't had it, what you'll notice is that there's more chapters written by Andre. <laughs> Why do you always say this? Because uh, most of the people here like you. Most of the people on did this podcast. Did you just hear that I'm the mean mom? <laughs> I, I Sometimes I got to put you in your place a little bit, you know, just to kind of don't want your head to get too big, you know. <laughs> Oh I'm joking. But we did write a book. It's called Love or Work. You can find it on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Uh, we would love it if you got it and maybe read it and shared it with your partner. Maybe shared what you learned back with us. We would love to hear back from you. Yeah. That but today. Yeah, let's talk about today. Let's talk about today. So today we are interviewing some friends of ours named Christina and Dan Ketmayura. And they are the founders of Toki Goods, which is a kind of minimalist baby book story capturing. Beautiful. It's so beautiful. It's like way more beautiful than most baby stories are. Baby books. Baby. I mean, yeah, that too. <laughs> that captures the baby stories. It's really cool. It's beautiful. So I'm going to spell it for you because I want you to look them up on Instagram. Also their website. It's T-O-K-K-I Goods. If I were to explain this. I would say this. If they asked me for a quote, oh, which they've never asked me They to, have not. But if I were to give a quote for it, <laughs> I would say... You this can, is your endorsement? And Yeah. Christina, you can quote me on this. Quote me on this. Not that any mother would buy a baby book because of my quote, but if I were to call it, I would say beautiful, refined, minimalist design 
done in a package that just makes you want to open it up and read it. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Put that in the ratings. I'm going to buy it now. Quoted by Jeff Schoenbarger. Oh, my goodness. Because of that quote. Because I have so much influence with new moms. We are excited to share this interview. I also want to say that we interviewed them in a week that was a really hard week for the Asian American community. Yes. uh, Especially the Asian American community here in Atlanta as there has been a rise of Asian hate crimes and a whole incident that happened in Atlanta. So we interviewed that very week. It's only been a few days fresh after that incident. And so we go into it. So if you uh, listen and if that's triggering, if that's hard for you, um, I just want you to know that. But I also really want you to hear what they have to say is something we should all learn from. Absolutely. I'm, they're very vulnerable. Yeah. And I'm thankful that they were open and honest and, yeah. and shared that with our community. Yeah. So here we go. Let's listen and learn from Christina and Dan Ketmayura. Yeah. So we were going to a church together and Christina had just moved up from Jacksonville, Florida, but we really got to know each other by doing a human trafficking ministry together. So we spent probably about two years doing that every Friday night where we would meet at a church. We would go out and walk the streets of Metropolitan and Fulton Industrial. And so it was just a ministry that we were doing together for quite some time. And then we ended up going to Africa together, to Sierra Leone. We actually got stuck there because the volcano in Iceland had erupted And so we got stuck. It's a crazy story too, because I had a series of dreams where I knew I was supposed to marry her. And I had told her that earlier on in the story. And she was like, okay, well, I don't feel that way. (laughs) Uh I was like, okay, well, that's okay. And so we just hung up on the phone at that point. And then we just continued being friends. And then I guess she just started to observe me more over time. And then after the trip to Africa, when we got back, she was like, okay, I think I can date you now. Um, I think when I saw him in Africa... And we were getting, you know, flat tires on the road. There was the living conditions. Everything was so rough. But seeing him kind of be really steadfast and all of that, like he had gotten ill on the trip and everything. And he always had like his fanny pack of stuff ready for everybody and took care of everyone and wanted to minister to everyone. And I thought that when we were I was like, wow, if we can get along this well when we're in kind of like the worst conditions, then things could work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the true test of character right there. Right? I think this is our first fanny pack love story. I'll be honest. That would be the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like that would be intense. Dreams about us being married. Yeah. I had dreams about her specifically, like probably three or four that were very vivid. And I knew that we were going to be together. Wow. First conversation, it was like, Hey, do you want to date? But I feel like we're supposed to be together. And it was pretty bold, but yeah. you know, I had peace about it. And she was like, I don't feel that way. And I was just like, okay, well, I know that it probably will work out. <laughs> wow. If you know Dan, he's just blunt and to the point. He doesn't hide anything. What you see is what you get. It definitely freaked me out. But then he was so hands off after I said no. He didn't pressure me. He didn't do anything. He just let me be. And I think that gave me space to process on my own without him constantly trying to you know, meet up or anything like that. She's the opposite of me, literally. (laughs) So she will like test and trial out and think through something probably like a hundred times over. Whereas if I know in my gut that 
it's something I should do, I'll just go and do it. And I won't even second guess it. That's a good mix between, you know, the opposites working together and making it happen. Yeah. So then she's processed this over time, experienced your level of service. And how did you get to a point of commitment? No. So that was like part one of like the hundred trials. (laughs) 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 Because after we came back from Africa, I actually started a restaurant. And that's when we started dating. You know, that was a trial in, in its own because wanting to start multiple restaurants long-term, take funds to create sustainable communities and to help people in general, but it just wasn't working out. So I legitimately was just working for free for about like a year and a half. I was just eating chicken teriyaki and sushi every day, losing weight. And then, you know, and then her parents, it took about three, four serious conversations of saying, you know, I want to marry your daughter. And they're like, well, with, with what money? Because you're not making any money. Um, and then, and then she went back to Africa again to do ministry in Mozambique. And that was her trip to kind of like figure out if she should marry me. So she was gone for about three months. And throughout the entire time, she was like thinking through it and figuring it out. So I bought a ring. It was either I had a dream or I saw the ring like in my mind. And I was like, okay, I think I know what it looks like. So I went on Craigslist and, and I found it literally within about 15 minutes. And then she had a dream in Africa about a ring. And then she was telling her girlfriends over there about it. She was like, oh yeah, you know, I saw this ring and I think God loves me. And all of her girlfriends were like, no, this is, I think, <laughs> I think this is about Dan. And so I had, I had bought the ring in that same, at that same time, she had the dream in Africa. Was it the same ring you envisioned? It was close. Whoa. But I didn't know he had bought the ring. So I came back to the States two and a half months later or something that he proposed. And I didn't know he had the ring. I was in shock <laughs> when he proposed. Because yeah. I was able to sell the restaurant, which was another story because it was a franchise and the franchise said, you know, pretty much we're not going to buy it back from you. And then they changed their mind all of a sudden. Then I was able to land a job the week before we sold it at Home Depot. And then about like a couple of weeks later, her parents gave me blessings. And then about a week after that, I proposed. Because you maybe had a real job now. Yes. Basically. <laughs> this is interesting. I don't think we've ever interviewed anyone where this dream aspect is like part of the whole process. I mean... Has, has it still continued? Yeah. Part of it is like us just are from our spirituality. Even like with the homes we've bought. There's something deeper behind that. I mean, that's a really beautiful storyline. We don't really talk about it much to a ton of people because I don't want people to think we're crazy. <laughs> but yeah. So tell us how you came upon the business Toki Goods. I bet there was a dream involved in this. I'm just going to throw that out there. I don't I, know. I know. And do you both work together on this? Tell us a little bit about that. And, you know, how did you kind of come up with this business idea? I really felt like I was supposed to stop working. And we raised our daughter and then I had my son So I was just kind of like working part-time from home. I really wanted to start a business, um, but I didn't really know what it would be. And the dream part is I was kind of awoken in the night with the name of it. And it was like so clear. It was like, it's going to be called The Minimalist Baby Book. And I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, we have to trademark that now. And so from there, that's where it kind of all started. And we definitely have worked on it all together. I think Dan tries to put me on the front, you know, because it is a book for mothers and I am speaking to mothers. And that's a big part of why I wanted to do, you know, what we do. But, you know, we both traveled with our kids to try to get the books made. And he does a lot of the taxes. He He does basically all the the boring, hard stuff that I don't want to do. 
And I do more of like the social media and meeting with the mothers and business owners and making connections like that. Yeah, I think a large part of it was I knew that she had something inside of her. And it took about two years from the time that we knew that she was supposed to start something for it to come to inception. And I'm very entrepreneurial. Uh, Like even my father has his own business. And I never imagined that I'd even be at my current job for more than two years. I thought I would leave and start another business again. But I knew that there was something inside of her that needed to come out and to be kind of birthed. And so between me and God and just wrestling with, you know, what should I be doing this season? He kind of told me, well, you need to take a step back from your entrepreneurial aspirations. And your job is just to support your wife and walk her into her identity of who she is, of being a a businesswoman and allowing her the space and time to work through that. And by doing that, I needed to take a step back fully and just focus on just the one job I had and helping to alleviate and provide space for her to do that. That's beautiful. He's very atypical in the sense that, you know, he's very supportive of women in general and like women, you know, leading things or taking charge. And I think a big reason why we even have this business is because you actually believed in me. You know, I, I don't think I even believed in myself, even though our business isn't making tons of sales. And, you know, in the eyes of the world, it's not successful monetarily. I think um, a big part of it was allowing me to work through those things, you know, just confidence or what it means to build a business, what it means to struggle through these things and to be believed in. And that personal growth has been, I think, a really important part of our journey for whatever is next. Wow. That's beautiful. It's called The Minimalist Baby Book. And I'm assuming that you have been interested in minimal living or this is part of your ethos together How did that become a part of you and your family? And then how have you raised your kids in that same way? I'm sure, you know, it doesn't just become yours. It's the family. So how has that minimalist living happened for you? I think I love the idea of minimalism definitely more than you. (laughs) (laughs) So when we had kids, I think we lived in a really tiny space and I just was so overwhelmed by all this baby gear and things. And I just, I really loved, you know, Marie Kondo, which everybody talks about, but just really loved the idea of only surrounding yourself with things you love and always in design too, prior to kids. I always felt like simplicity is the best and ultimate sophistication, you know, like that's famous quote. And I think it just pervaded who I am. And then with kids, like all their clothes is like a solid top or solid bottom so they can mix and match. So we don't have a ton of clothes, but they can dress themselves. They're out the door. I don't have to worry about if their clothes match because all of them kind of fit together. So we do like the little whole capsule wardrobe for them. They get like one pair of tennis shoes, one pair of dress shoes, and one pair of like summer shoes. And, you know, obviously we get gifted things and we're trying to always purge. It's not perfect. So I think in this journey, the biggest part of me has been, okay, I know that I like minimalism, but how do I live in balance with people who don't live like that? <laughs> with my, my husband and, you know, he loves cables and wires and extra chargers. <laughs> <laughs> and so how do we balance that? I'm more of the uh, functional yeah. person and I like having all the right tools. So that's where it's a, it's a balance of... And I'm definitely the one who gets blamed when something's lost. Did you throw it away? All my, my, both my kids and my husband. Did you throw that in the trash? (laughs) Yes. 
So then that turned into also part of this book idea. Like, is that where this baby book kind of idea came from in terms of like too much stuff on the walls, like too many pictures? And so you want to put it all into one thing together or like, how did that happen? I wanted to create something that wasn't just adding waste into the world, like more outfits, more things that you don't need. I wanted something that if you're actually going to buy it, I know you're going to keep it and you're not just going to keep it for yourself. You're probably going to give it to your children. And if it lives on, it's going to go down to your children's children. And then the design of it was really kind of emphasizing minimalism in the sense that my own struggle was all this baby gear, you know, and these baby books, they have cheesy illustrations and they put their own quotes in about motherhood and the author would put their own thoughts into it. And I'm thinking, well, this is about your child. So how can, you know, in my philosophy of design, it's like design, if it's really good, you won't even notice it. You know, it'll just be kind of seamless. Yeah. And so I felt like with this book, I want it to be where the design really kind of steps in the back, but then the story of the child starts to shine. So the images, the photography that you put in there, the little quotes that you put in there, the funny things they say, it becomes this rich history of the child versus anything to do with a book. And I think the classic design was so that it could sit in my room or my child's room or a grandparent's room and not be this tacky thing that just kind of sits there, but it could be something that lives on forever. That's why we haven't necessarily expanded our product line too much because it's like, I want to only create things that add value and hold meaning. And I think that really kind of, I mean, it's like a catch 22 because it hinders me from growing too much and trying new things. But at the same time, I have like these resolute values that kind of sometimes I feel like hold me back, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to create something that may become waste, right? Mm-hmm. And because what she's created is something that is something that will become generational mm-hmm. and it has heartfelt thoughts and meaning that essentially helps craft and create your perception of the identity of who your parents kind of made you to be, right? And these are thoughts that from when you can't even articulate or, or speak up until maybe like you're three or four, right? Where you can really have complex thoughts, but just being able to see what your parents really just thought and mm-hmm. felt about you. Because even my parents, I mean, like I asked my mom things about my childhood and she's like, I can't remember. And, and it's unfortunate because there was nothing like that for me to be able to look back on. How did my father feel? And he's not a big emotional person. So even getting him to talk about his childhood is difficult. So to be able to have that captured and to be passed on, I think is so valuable. Yeah, I'd love if you could share a little bit about your cultural background and how that kind of shaped your relationship. I'm curious how that has informed who you guys are today. Yeah, I think even though we're both Asian, because Dan's Thai and I'm Korean, we come from very different cultures. So we appreciate each other's food, like, you know, Korean food, Thai food, things like that. But as far as culturally... It's, it's very much the opposite. So in my culture, it's much more rigid. There's a lot more hierarchy. You know, you show respect. You have to do, you know, when you go to somebody's house and, in, in, you know, they're, they're an older adult, like your friends, parents are there, you should take a basket of fruit and always bring that. Always show respect. And in Thai culture, it's very different. It's, you can go into it. Well, it's a little bit more free and relaxed. A lot, a lot and, more free. And if you look like cultural, historical context, like Korea was essentially enslaved by Japan for quite some time. So you look at cultures like uh, Korean culture, Jewish culture, like those cultures that have been oppressed for a very long time become very ethnocentric. Mm -hmm. And so those cultural values become that much stronger Mm -hmm. because it's a part of who they are and their identity. And so they want to hold on to that. For Thai people, Thailand's never been conquered by anyone. No Mm -hmm. one's ever ruled over Thailand. 
Uh, I mean, there's never really been a war that they've ever been involved in. It's a very free place. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to this day, it's like one of those places that people want to go vacation because it's so free. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, if I was like initially you know, in a relationship with Christina going to a Korean household, I have to be super respectful, honorable. I don't sit down and eat until the parents are seated and start eating. Uh, you serve them first. Whereas her first experience coming to my house was, oh yeah, go ahead and eat, you <laughs> yeah. know, and she didn't know what to do with herself yeah. because all the younger adults and children were already eating. And she was just kind of waiting for the for yeah. my parents to sit down and eat, to serve them. But it's just a very free, relaxed culture. So it's very polar in that way. So as you started to kind of develop your own family, the two of you coming from different cultural backgrounds, how did those things start to mesh or unfold in leading the family that you guys have today? Or it could be in your own relationship. I'm curious. When we first got married, I mean, there was a lot of just varying thoughts on how things should be done. And even now, I'd say Korean culture, because what I mentioned earlier, how ethnocentric it is, it's a very strong culture. And you can even see how like in the world today, like you know, the BTS and K-pop and even Korean food and how everyone's doing like a mukbang now, like that's all from Korea. It just permeates. And so even within our household, like I feel like Korean culture is probably dominated more so. Yeah, Um, And so that's where I have to find a balance of like, you know, how do I introduce the children to Thai culture at a certain point? Mm -hmm. We kind of have to figure that out. Yeah, so we're trying to figure out, can we start taking, I mean, obviously when COVID is over, and things are a little bit back to normal. Um, you know, can we take trips to Thailand and expose the kids to, you know, Thai culture fully? And then, you know, obviously we'll be going to Korea, but right now our kids both go, like our youngest goes to a daycare that's fully Korean. So he's immersed in Korean all day. And then our oldest goes to, she's in kindergarten at a little charter school. So 50% of her day is in Korean. So there, there are a lot more Korean resources, a lot more Korean people in Atlanta. So we've been able to kind of like capitalize on that, but with Thai culture, yeah, it's definitely been pretty limited, I think. Yeah. As a Asian American and someone, you know, had immigrant parents who moved to the U.S., our cultures are very communal. Even with COVID, right? Here in America, it was very, like, political and charged for you to wear a mask. Whereas in Asia, you wear a mask when you're sick to protect other people and you intentionally do it. So that was that was a norm already. Like if you're sick, you feel like you're getting sick, you put on a mask to protect other people because you are thoughtful and mindful of others. And this is before COVID. Oh yeah, like in Korea and Thailand, China, that's just the norm. If you feel like you're getting sick, you put on a mask because you're mindful mm. of your community. And, and even the way that the terms that I use in Thai for like people that I meet, it's like, and even Korean, it's like, you call them brother or sister or auntie or uncle. Mm. There's not like, I don't call you Bob or I don't call you by like your first name. I call you by a familial name. Mm. Um, so like when that culture transitions over in America, we oftentimes chose not to rock the boat, to blend in and not to, I guess, raise a stink, right? Because we want to be accepted. That's why we've been very silent for a very long time. And now that things have come up and been raised, we don't really know what to do with it because we don't like to take up space because, you know, by us talking about Asian hate crimes, we feel like we're taking away from our Black brothers and sisters. Like we don't want to take up their space because they've been through this for so much longer and have experienced so much worse. But even though me growing up, the first like three years of going to elementary school, riding on the school bus, there was this one boy that called me Ching Chong and came up with like rhymes about essentially like my Asian heritage and just like bashing me every single day for like years. Me seeing my dad pulled over by by a cop for doing nothing. My dad was like, it's okay, don't say anything. Just stand there, you know, and we never talked about it. 
So there's a lot that has happened and we just don't rock the boat. Now that we are choosing to have a voice, I think that's even a struggle. Mm. Like, do we even have the right to have a voice? You know, do we choose to have a voice? Mm. How do you feel, Christina? I know this is very emotional for you. How do you talk to your kids? We've been just trying to process... Because I've been trying to process so much and I've been kind of thinking through, okay, how am I going to talk to them? But, and we've kind of, you know, I've kept it lighter where I just prayed with them and told them very high level, there are things going on right now in our city that we should pray for. And um, I guess I just am searching for how specific, how vague do I get with the children? And knowing that Daniel was, you know, just turned four and not trying to instill fear in them, but trying to really teach them and make them aware. We are all hurting as a community. And like Dan said, I think I'm just trying to process it all still. And, you know, even today when I saw the names of the Korean women who were, uh, their names being released and seeing there's, you know, now there's their brothers, there's two of them and they lost their only mom, their single mom. They were raised by her as single mother. And just hearing his kind of story, it's just been, it's very relatable. It's very, something very common for a lot of single Korean mothers to be doing and raising their kids and basically doing anything they can to raise them. And I don't know, I I just struggle with just all of the emotions of it right now. So I don't really know how to really encourage my brothers and sisters or what to say yet. Yeah, I would say just choose to feel with like people who have been oppressed and have gone through, because it wasn't too long ago where they were oppressed. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, Christina's grandmother lived through that time Mm -hmm. where they had the Korean flag on the floor and that was your doormat, right? And like Japanese, like they forced you to step on it as you went into school. And so you walk away from that and you shut down all your emotions for so long and you pass it on to your children because you never have the equipping or tools to talk about your emotions because you shut it down. And now we're having to feel. And so like giving people the space and freedom to feel, Mm -hmm. I think that's going to be kind of like part of that journey of finding your voice is choosing to feel as well. Well, thank you for sharing your story. And we are with you and support you and especially the entire Asian American community here in Atlanta are hurting. And so thank you for sharing. Thank you guys. Like Andre's questions, like, what do you want to say about this? Or what? I mean, it's like you guys are in real time processing this and thanks for even being vulnerable in that way. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Thank you for asking. I want to go back to something you said earlier, Christina, about your philosophy on design, about how like great design, if it's done well, you you don't even really see it. So you have this philosophy of what design looks like and what is beautiful. And then your kids come along. This is our experience a little bit. They mess everything And and all they want to do is wear the, uh, some Disney dress all day, every day. It's like, that's actually, you notice all of that all the time, right? Yeah. What do you do when your kids mess all of your minimalism and beautiful design ideas up? Yeah. So we have kind of like a thing where (laughs) Dan's mom loves to buy the kids things. Like the toys, we limit it to things where they can be creative. Yeah. Um, And we don't just get things that are just like single purpose. So they play primarily with like Legos and blocks. They probably spend, I say like 80% of the time, literally just drawing. Yeah. We definitely limit their their toys. You know, every time right before Christmas rolls around and we know aunties and uncles and grandparents are getting them stuff, we do a purge every year. 
I'm like, no. okay, y'all are about to get a ton of things. We tr- we try to talk to them a lot about, okay, material things, they're not going to make you happy. So, and surprisingly, which I didn't expect is that my daughter and son kind of, they don't really beg for or ask for things like, they like their clothes that are minimal. They don't really seem to have a problem with it. I don't know, it's because they've never known anything else. I think even just like, it's taken time. And I've noticed even with like the toys you get over Christmas, like if it's a race car or whatever, those things don't get played with much. Yeah. Like they get played with for like that week or two, but then yeah. after that, it's just kind of over with. Because we yeah. found by creating space for like the minimalism of things that where they have to be creative, they lean towards wanting to do those things. Mm-hmm. They spend probably all their time like drawing or crafting. They literally will just sit there and craft and create things at home to play with. But I think by having less, it forces them to like, use their brains and to be more creative and to think, um, you know, they'll take like an Amazon box and make like a crib for one of their dolls. And they'll literally just sit there for like an hour and like make all the specific details so that it looks like a real crib. It's been interesting during COVID where I feel like there's a lot more boredom that's happening. You know, there's not a lot of activities, a lot of things to do. I've found my daughter just tinkering and creating and crafting like so much more. And I think that kind of goes in that same line of like her space is not all cluttered. Like her time is not all cluttered with all these activities and going into in and out of friends and this and sports or whatever. It's kind of boring. She tinkers now and it's really cool to see that play out more and see her creativity. When I was like looking at your Uh, some of the stuff you guys have done, like I saw this thing about this weekly rhythm worksheet you guys created. Two observations I have in looking at everything you do. It seems like living the minimalist life, thinking about it for your children, thinking about documenting all that, It's it takes incredible intentionality and forethought, right? And it feels like maybe that's how you've approached the rhythms of your family. Is there some unique rhythms that you could share with us or, or how have you approached that? I definitely think we have like, I don't want to say it rhythms. It's almost like a daily schedule that we do. Things are pretty regimented in our home. The kids know to get up, get dressed, do the things they need to do, come down, we eat. Um, Emma goes to school first and I have one hour before Daniel goes to his school. So I do one hour of just learning or whatever he wants to do. Then he goes to school. Um, our rhythm has constantly changed because when we were during COVID and they weren't going anywhere for a year, it was very different. So I needed to have set my own structure for every hour kind of thing. But And the kids had a lot of free play. But now that they're in school, we have this huge luxury that just came up out into our lives as of six months ago. So now it looks a little bit different. You know, when they come home, you know, we just have a rhythm of how we get to dinner time and they get all their things done and they clean the house together. Um, we try to go outside for a bit. So it's changed, I think. It's always changing with kids and with life circumstances. Yeah. yeah, I think it's always changing, but it's important to set those expectations and rhythms for the children. Otherwise, I feel like they kind of get lost and they get frustrated. Yeah. Um, and I think it creates frustrations within the household too. Yeah. Because it becomes these unspoken frustrations like you should have known. But then, you know, we had, we had to talk about it because with the kids, like, unless you set a rhythm for them, yeah, um, it does lead to a lot of frustrations. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, our daughter, we were trying to give her more leeway to read. She loved reading. And I was trying to give her some more freedom to say, hey, when you, you know, you can read like a chapter or two and go to bed on your own. You know, you, know, you need to probably limit it to 20 minutes. And she was reading into the night. 
And the next day she would wake up and have all these meltdowns. And we finally realized, oh my gosh, she's not doing her 20 minutes. I need to be more intentional about putting a, a stricter boundary around. She's still too young to understand what that is. And so we had to go back and say, okay, why we need to go to bed early? You had these meltdowns the day before. You know, the, it's caused by you staying up and you're not going to sleep when we're recommending. And so she really took that in. Now she's like, okay, she kind of knows a little bit more. Let me measure myself. Let me go to sleep on time. So she was hitting a really good rhythm for that for about a month. And then recently she digressed again. And she was like, I'm so tired in the morning. I said, did you stay up late and read past when we told you to sleep? And she goes, yes. And then she goes, but at least I told the truth, mommy. (laughs) So we ask every couple this question that we interview. And the question is, is it possible to change the world, stay in love and raise a healthy family? I think it's possible, but there's definitely seasons to everything. Yeah. Um, and even, you know, when I shared earlier about, I had to go into a season where I took a step back for my own kind of mm-hmm. dreams and passions. There's a lot of give and take to, to make all of it work at the same time. Cause there's going to be seasons with your children where they just need more of your time as they kind of learn who they are and form their own personhood and their own identity. And there's seasons where, you know, Christina or I, you know, you go into that midlife crisis or whatever, and you kind of have to take a step back to allow room and space for that. Right. Cause you know, Christina, she went through like probably four years of like postpartum mm-hmm. and we didn't know that she was in postpartum until like four years into it, <laughs> you know? And so that was a really big part of our journey. And, yeah. and, and at times you have to make room for like self-care before you can go yeah. change the world outside of yourself. It's all part of that journey, development of you as an individual and having, I guess, something to speak on or from mm-hmm. so that people can actually connect with you and trust that you understand where they're at to be able to help lead them forward as well. Yeah. And I think both of us really put our dreams on hold when the kids are really young, but now all of a sudden, you know, they're four and six and it's like, wow, we have breathing room. Okay. So with this extra room, I'm able to refocus on my business a little bit more. And Dan's able to do the ministry that he wants to do and start, you know, working with younger men. And so it's been seasons. It's been like an ebb and flow where we say, okay, well, right now I can't just go full force with my passion or my dream because there's another need. And so that gets put on hold. And then at another season, you know, you can work on it. So I think it's just the biggest thing that I've learned is, you know, as we try to pursue our dreams and like you said, change the world and fall in love again. It's been a season of, you know, just knowing that there's different times for each thing. And I know we had a big season where we just worked on our marriage. So nothing else was really getting work done yeah. except for that. So yeah, because yeah. we needed to be whole yeah. before we try to go fix other people yeah. and other things. Because <laughs> otherwise we would have just fully broken all together. Yeah. How did you get through that? So we went from this season of literally every single weekend, we were doing ministry out on the streets Mm -hmm. and then we got married. And it's like, you know, when you come into marriage, like each individual is now confronted with themselves Mm -hmm. more than with the other person, because now you have someone that's reflecting your issues back to you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we really had to work through a lot of our past hurts, things that we didn't even really know that we were dealing with until it was reflected back at us. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we went to intentional counseling mm-hmm. um, and it was constant peeling back of one more layer of the onion and finding something else, mm-hmm. you know, but it's over the years, it's been so good because it's been almost nine years that we've been married, but now 
we feel very close to one another and there's still room to grow in that space to become even closer. Um, but we finally kind of have gone through that rubbing of all the rough edges and the things that are keeping us from being as close as we like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're beginning to feel that closeness and intimacy in our, in our marriage and our relationship. I think that allows us then freedom and space to trust one another uh, with what we'll do as we go out and venture into the world. Because we'll have our own stories, even though we're together and our own missions. But I think that gives us room and freedom to trust one another that we'll know how to manage those situations with thoughtfulness and honoring the other other person. Yeah, like I remember... We were joking about this morning how I used to get upset at Dan for like three days in a row, <laughs> and we were like, I would, I would be like, I'm just not going to talk to him for forever, <laughs> and I think that we would have these fights, and I would say, I'm going to sleep out on the couch, and he would be distraught, like not know what to do, and then eventually, as we worked through things, I'm like, No, I'm going to sleep on the bed. You're going to sleep on the couch. And now, like, I feel like there's so much healing. We both just resolve things and sleep in the bed together. <laughs> so it's just been like a, a journey of like, okay, we, we've come. I was joking with him about this morning. So I'm like, we've come a long way, actually. Like, okay, this is how we're going to solve things and work through things together versus just passively just me <laughs> being upset. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of marriage, like learning how to fight um, yeah. and learning how to fight for one another, yeah. which is the difference, right? And so it took a long time for us to figure that out. What I appreciate about him through the years is that he's taught me how to like express myself. And I think, you know, resolve conflict in a way that's healthy. And that definitely came from both of us going to counseling, getting help and things. But um, he's very rational and very calm. It's very hard to upset him. (laughs) So, Yeah. And now it's time for the breakdown. Wow, I got kind of emotional. At the end of this, I want to keep this a little on the lighter side. Really? Because I'm about to go all in my feelings. Wow. (laughs) Well, You start with yours. I'll go in my feelings. I want to talk about dreams. Oh, you are so into that. Yeah. What's interesting is we've had some moments like that. We sold our house in a similar way. In a dream mentality. Mm -hmm. And it all happened. So I think a lot of times culturally, we feel like we can't honestly share that stuff. But this stuff happens. I think a lot of us are looking for a sign to make turning points in our life. Yeah. And... Yet we don't want to acknowledge it because what if someone else thinks that they 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 don't respect it? Yeah. And for them, it's like, no, this has been part of their story, I which know. is pretty cool. I know. And I love that it just flows into her too, that like she is like first it kind of started with Dan, but then it really just flowed in with Christina as well. And now it's just part of their story and they own it, which I think is beautiful. Like they're not rejecting that spirituality and that form of knowing like a a deeper knowing that they have and they own it and they make decisions in that way, which is awesome. Okay. Can I get in my feelings and then you can end lighter? Sure. Okay. Here's my feelings. When Dan said that we need to choose to feel, I was thinking about that from their point of view and culturally that's, a big step and a big deal for them. And I think that's very true. And then I was thinking it from the point of view of maybe all of us listening that are not a part of the Asian American community and thinking that 
regardless of what has happened or the facts or the this or the that that comes out um, after this week of this podcast interview, that we should also be choosing to feel for them. And that idea of feeling their hurt and putting ourselves in their place and having some moments of like reflection and care for that community Mm. and reaching out to our friends who are Asian and letting them know that we are feeling with them. I think that should be a way that maybe we can help or be a part or feel with them. Yeah, I think that's beautifully stated. But let's talk about their their beautiful design and their togi goods. Yes. I love how she really wants to create something that holds meaning and value and mm. that lasts over time. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful principle in her design. I mean, you see it in everything that they do. Oh, if you look at their beautiful. Instagram and you look at their stuff. I want to spell Toki, T-O-K-K-I. Make sure you look that up so you yep. can fully see the beauty and the design that they do. Photography, all that. I mean, it's just it's just done so beautiful. And to like not want to create more clutter and waste in this world, I think is really inspiring. It's really inspiring. Today they inspired my parenting of how I could maybe parent in a more minimalistic fashion with our kids. I've been thinking, how could you view our plants in our house in a more minimalistic view? <laughs> no. Is that what you took is that your takeaway? Absolutely not. What? I'm talking about all our kids' junk and oh, toys. You said parenting, not plants. What? Plants. Parenting. Babe, you are starting to get a little I enjoy our in-house jungle. <laughs> I really you called it I, that. <laughs> I am creating more oxygen in the world and it's very healing yeah. to my soul. I'm curious what the minimalist community would say about plants. <laughs> They're living things that continue on beyond and they create oxygen and nutrients for our soul. But there's a point when you all of a sudden I have don't think so. I, a I just greenhouse. It's a jungle it's <laughs> <laughs> and it's beautiful. I'm talking about cut and down on toys. And I'm going to tell you something. Yes. If you're listening to this and you're about to have a baby, you have a young oh. child or let's or say you're a shower. A yeah, baby yeah, shower. You should get this. This is the gift that when the person opens up, they're like, wow. Wow. It's like wow. meaningful. I really want to encourage you to check this out. Go to tokigoods.com. This is the best, on Instagram. best baby gift, shower gift, all the gifts. This for might be like your mom. new It new is my new to. thing. Yeah. I have two. I have two very strong ones I use every time. Yeah. This is my new one. And thank you so much, Dan and Christina, for joining us on the Love Work Podcast. Thanks for sharing your vulnerable story. Yeah. What just an encouraging time to be with them today. Yeah. And that's another episode of Love, Love or, or Work. This episode was recorded by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.